Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. One of my favorite aspects of covering the many incredible Canadian stories I have is the opportunity to share them with new minds that now get to consider them for the first time. As an example, in my prior episodes, I was able to share the Belle Island boom with the hosts of Astonishing Legends, and of course, the disappearance of Emma Filipoff with Tim and Lance of the Missing Maura Murray podcast. For tonight's episode, I've invited Justin and Aaron, the hosts of the incredibly popular podcast, Generation Y, to join me for a discussion on all things Shag Harbor. To make the conversation even more special, I shared with them a recording I'm very excited about. Just after production of part one of this series, I was fortunate to meet with the man that saw the entire thing play out. You may remember his name from the prior episode. Lifelong Shag Harbor resident Lori Wickens followed the object in his car while it was in the air. He witnessed it crash into the water, and he made the first call to the authorities reporting a downed aircraft. After Lori met with the first responders on the shore of Shag Harbor, he also accompanied search and rescue as they traveled to the scene of the crash by boat, and he was one of the few that encountered the odd foam that was bubbling on the surface of the dark waters. In true Canadian fashion, I met with Lori Wickens at a local Tim Hortons coffee shop and asked him to share his memory of the events of that night with me. During my conversation with Aaron and Justin, you'll hear what he had to say. For anyone not in the know, Generation Y is one of the most popular podcasts out there. With nearly 200 episodes under their belt, Aaron and Justin have considered enough true crime, mysteries, and strange events to fill an entire encyclopedia. I was very glad to hear they were interested in hearing about the Shag Harbor UFO sighting. After they learned the basics of the story, the three of us discussed the sighting, we listened to Lori Wicken's statement that I already told you about, and of course, we discussed what we think may have happened that night in October of 1967. Before I got in touch with you, have either of you ever heard of this case? I'd heard of a lot of UFO sightings. Uh, this one specifically, I probably had come across it, but it did not stick out to me. I had no recollection of it, but I, I have read up on many UFO cases. But yes, it, it wasn't familiar to me when you sent me the title. All right, good. I'm always interested in hearing stuff like that, stuff like that, like these stories, like Shag Harbor. From as a Canadian who's interested in the UFO phenomenon, it's hard to to escape a story like this. But I guess uh, just once you cross that border, for you, it's just you know Roswell, and you know these stories are the are the big ones. So before we get into it, why don't you just start by introducing yourselves and and maybe just talk a bit about the show, uh, what kind of stories you cover, and maybe even get back to, to what led to you starting it. Uh, well, I'll start with what we cover. We cover unsolved murders. We cover mysteries. We cover disappearances, controversies, conspiracies, and sometimes even paranormal. And a lot of the times we cover solved murder cases, but there's a lot of questions around it. Hmm. When did you start your show? 2013? No. Oh. <laughs> it was in June of 2012. Uh-huh. <laughs> It was 2013 when we started doing the show weekly. In 20, 
2012, we were doing a twice monthly podcast. Fantastic. And what uh, originally, could you just talk about what led you both to start start a show like this, especially start uh, with covering these sorts of topics? We, we'd listened to other podcasts and were always into true crime and, and murder mystery kind of things. And I happened to get called in for jury duty uh, for a first degree murder trial. And I told Aaron that I wanted to talk about it and go on record. And he said, that's cool because there's a lot of other murder things that I want to talk about. So why don't we just start this podcast? And what about the, uh, as you say, you cover the paranormal from time to time. Is this something you've just always been into? Yes, I'm very much a skeptic, but I still like reading up on especially the historical paranormal events that people have recounted through the ages. I probably wasn't as big of a fan of Art Bell as you guys, but I, I did listen to Art Bell on occasion. So, yeah. When I, I mentioned I've listened to a, quite a few episodes of your show, I've heard your episode on Roswell and the, the UFO situation that happened there. Have you, Aside from that, have you covered the UFO phenomenon much in the past? Not exactly. I think we've only done that story. I, I think we'd planned on doing a few more, but for whatever reason, we just had other murders and murder trials to cover first. I would say that we covered Billy Meyer, and he's renowned for having actual video and photographic evidence of UFOs and of time travel and beings and creatures from other times, uh, including the future. Hmm. And so we covered that in two parts. One where I had a guest on who's also a podcaster, and then in a follow-up episode with the leading researcher into the Billy Meyer case. I've never heard of this Billy Meyer case. Where was where did this happen? He's actually from Switzerland and he's a one-armed farmer and he uses a camera to capture images of these UFOs and he's met people from outer space and has been taken on time travel trips and so he's he's kind of like a, a protected person. And he has a North American representative who speaks for him. But I've heard recently that his group is sort of going through a split. So a little trouble there in Meyertown. Huh. And what do you mean by a protected person? Uh, I would say that if you say anything disparaging or if you disagree with Billy Meyer's stories or his, or if you try to refute his evidence, then you come under fire you will have someone contact you and berate you and threaten you. And to give you an idea, he had photographs of dinosaurs. Some people and have been able to track those down and say, well, this image came from this book and this other one came from this movie. Oh. And then he says, oh, yes, that's because uh, government agents went into the home and swapped out the actual images and replaced those that were online with fake images as well to try and take Billy Meyer down because he was speaking the truth. Wow. I'm going to have to, well, I'll listen to your episode on it and then uh, read up on it from beyond that. But it sounds like quite the story. Yeah. Yes. There will be a lot to read up on and digest with that one. Wow. So of all the topics you covered, what, uh, what stands out as your, as, as your, as the case that grabbed onto you most tightly? As far as mystery goes, I think D.B. Cooper was a crazy mystery, mm -hmm. personally. That's my choice. I think another one is the Spreckles Mansion case because it involves the death of a young child and then days later the death of 
the child's uh, father's girlfriend. And so there's a real question in there. Were, was there any foul play or was the, was the child's death an accident? Was it murder? Was her death suicide or was it murder? Hmm. And it's a very complicated case, but it's, it's so mysterious that even to this day, I end up thinking about it from time to time. Yeah, it's it, the ones like that that have all the that have so many moving parts are the ones that can just make it crazy. So, what 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 the plan is for for this talk is we're going to listen to a statement I recorded with Lori Wickens. Lori was the original eyewitness to the Shag Harbor incident. He was the one who who uh, basically the story was he was driving, saw the lights, saw them crash into the harbor, and he phoned um, he phoned the RCMP and made the first call uh, reporting a downed aircraft. So we'll listen to his recording. Um, again, this is in true Canadian fashion. This is me and Laurie sitting down at a Tim Hortons coffee shop. So there's, there's a bit of background noise as this plays. So I'll play that now. All right, Laurie, so I'm, I'm recording it now. So why don't, I, I won't do it like an interview or anything. You can just, in your own words, just kind of describe from the point where you were driving and first saw the lights. All right, there was four of us coming from Barrington, going towards Woods Harbor. We was in the middle of Shake Harbor. I'd say that's roughly where it was. And on the right-hand side of the car, up over the woods, not out over the water, we see lights at first. And then we, as we paid attention to them, one would be on, it would be on the three, the four, it'd all be on for a second. Then they would go out and start over in that sequence. And it seemed to be going along with us, no faster than what we were driving. It must have went along with us for about five minutes drive or close to it. And as we made a corner and started going up the hill, the light went from flying level to a 45 degree angle. And as we was going up over the hill, we lost sight of it. For about two seconds we made the top of the hill, we could see the light in the water, and we did not do as the papers say, we did not stop there. We went directly to the phone, report, uh, called the RCMP, and said, we just seen a plane crash. He asked me, he said, what you been drinking? I said, nothing. And he asked me for the number of the phone booth, and I went to get back in the car, and the phone rang, and I answered it, and he asked me where we could meet to see it in the water, and I told him the moss plant. And so we drove down there, and we were there five minutes or so before the first police car come, then another one, and we could see the light drifting down by. We watched that for about 20 minutes before it went out. What made you so sure it was a plane crash? Well, we just thought it was a plane. We didn't know of nothing else. Probably never even heard of a UFO before. Mm. And the lights, um, when I've seen drawings of it, it's always the four lights kind of right in a row. When you, to me, it would look like maybe the lights on the wing of a plane. Is that what you thought uh, the lights were? No, and they got the lights way too bright for what we see that night. And it was... Uh, the lights looked like they was on something long. Other than that, I can't tell. It didn't look... And after you uh, you called whoever you called, and you went back to the site and saw the lights in the water... Just one light. There Just was only one light in the water. When we made the top of the hill, there was one light in the water. And we, we just noticed the light then, but when we come back and was really looking at the light, it looked like a half of a globe upside down with a yellowish colored light in it. And that's where the word dark object comes from. It was just a dark object with the uh, light. That's what some other, other people reported, and that's where they picked. It actually comes from a military telex that refers to it. 
I don't have it on. Okay, yeah. We never noticed nothing but light. You saw the light. You know, we, all we saw is the light, and it looked like the light was flush on the water. To me, other people have got other opinions, but to me, that's mine. And the three RCMP officers come there and seen it, and there was four of us, or five of us in the car, but four of us, Normie Smith, and some of his relations come and see it in the water and, or, and park there and some other people, so. How, how long was the light sitting there, roughly? It was probably in the water an hour from the time we first see it till the light disappeared. Drifting down by there with the toy. From the time we see it, went to the RC, uh, phone booth, called, come back and watched it with the RCMP coming, then watched, walked up over the hill and watched it drift down to where it finally went out. We probably watched it for close to an hour. Wow. And um, you were on the site, watched it for about an hour. How long were you there before you left on the uh, scene? Well, after the light went out, me and one of, the RC, one of the RCMP officers went down and went out on the Coast Guard Cutter 101. And the other guys went down and they went out on two local fishing boats. And they was out there probably an hour before we got there on the Coast Guard because the Coast Guard had to come from Black Harbor. Oh, so you actually got on the boat? I got them. on the Coast Guard boat, me and one of the RCMP officers, I don't know which one, mm. and went out on the Coast Guard that night. I think one of the other RCMP officers was aboard one of the fishing boats, but I'm not sure. Okay. And how old were you when this happened? 17. I would have been 18 at the end of the month. So that was that was Laurie's statement. What do you guys think of the story uh, told from Laurie's point of view? He sounds passionate. He sounds uh, like he truly believes the events from that day. Unquestionably. And he, also, you can hear in his voice and just his delivery he's told that story a lot of times but again this has been going on since 67 and his name has been tied to it the entire time if you watch pretty much any documentary or read any book on the case um, it's it's going to reference him or or he was interviewed in it if it's a documentary or whatnot so he's he can definitely rattle off the details Mm -hmm. yeah i would say there are stories that stick with you once you've heard them and then there are stories that stick with you because you were a part of them and he definitely comes across as having been a part of something. Oh, yeah. And, and sitting down, like with the day I sat down with him at Tim Hortons to talk to him, um, as soon as I sat down, there was, there was no doubt in my mind that everything he told me was, was going to be true. Like he was, um, he was not the kind of guy that the appearance and, and just the feel when I sat down there, he was not the kind of guy that was going to make up a UFO story. He was uh, a very uh, laid back kind of just as you'd imagine, if you went to a, a rural area and met one of the fishermen there, that's exactly what Laurie Wickens is like. So he's a, a very, a very down-to-earth guy. And his story, there's no point of even questioning it because he's not the only eyewitness. Pretty much that entire community all saw what he saw. And when they all rushed to the harbor, um, looking out at the at the light, you know, slowly, uh, slowly sinking, they, they all saw the same thing. So I think um, to to me, it, I find it funny that people uh, from across the border in the states don't know this story because to me, this, in my opinion, anyways, is, is has to be the most compelling UFO UFO sighting just because of the amount of people that saw it and the credibility of the people that saw it, like Lori, the other fishermen that uh, that were on site that day, as well as the RCMP and the Coast Guard. And none of these people really have a connection to each other, so it's not as if they were conspiring to come up with the same story they all were separate witnesses in this event 
with much the same story. The, a lot of people describe the same um, the same lights in the sky, the calls to the uh, to the RCMP reporting it were all within you know just a matter of minutes. I think it was the total number. I think was six separate calls to the RCMP reporting a downed aircraft. Uh, six separate calls from you know from unrelated witnesses. So unquestionably, something did happen. And the other thing I would add is, as far as I'm aware, the government isn't disputing the possibility of it being an unknown craft. They actually haven't really said anything. Yeah, that's that just kind of, um, they've, they've even actually, in this case, what's unique about this is the government on some of the official documents even use the terminology UFO. There's um, the... The guest on my first episode covering the the topic, Chris Stiles, he had showed me some of the government documents he got through the Freedom of Information Act, and one of them was a was a report. I think it was from the Coast Guard that was describing what had happened. And whoever wrote the report, they wrote uh, in big letters up at the top of it. They wrote UFO and underlined it a few times. But even within the report, it's using the 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 terminology UFO to describe it. Of course, they mean unidentified flying object. But it's still interesting to see. The, that word or those uh, that acronym used on a you know an official document describing an event. Well, one word can mean multiple things, right? So in this case, it could just mean it's an unidentified craft. But if they're underlining it, could they also mean flying saucer in a way like alien craft? Because UFO is sort of like the term. It's like Kleenex. Yeah, exactly. But it's um, unquestionably something happened and. I, I can't think of another case, another uh, another UFO sighting where there's been where there's this many people with eyes on it. And again, the fact that they're unrelated. If you have you know a crowd of ten people who are all together and say they saw the same thing, to me that's different than ten separate people who loosely know each other from different vantage points that all describe the same thing. Exactly. And I don't know if you um, I you told me you, you said watched a lot of documentaries and stuff about it. There's also a photograph that may or may not show the object. It was a a guy, a photographer in the area was burning a boat. I guess that's what you do when you have an old wooden boat. You light it on fire to get rid of it. But he was taking a picture of uh, of himself uh, in the boat burning. But in the background, he managed to catch uh, to catch some of the lights. So there's there is some evidence to this day in that photo. But aside from that, there's not much else to, to go on. Yeah, and it looked like a time-lapse photo also. Yeah, but what was uh, what was strange was it was a time-lapse photo, but the like the stars and stuff, you could see the motion, like the, frame, the shutter was open long enough to catch the motion of the stars, but the object was stationary, indicating it wasn't just, you know, something in the sky, like a satellite or something like that. I just thought it was weird that he was taking a photo of himself burning a boat but <laughs> whatever well it's a very modern thing to do nowadays it would have been a, a pretty sweet selfie you know yeah. on Facebook. i burnt my boat last night <laughs> well it makes me wonder because the reports were that it was an object that was moving correct but he takes a photograph and there's a light that isn't moving yeah but um, it, it was taken an hour before the witness account so maybe it was hovering and then it started moving later yeah, well, that night they d- they described the night as the night of the UFOs because the the actual incident on Shag Harbor by many is seen as the the um, the basically the grand finale of a night of UFO sightings right across the province. So there was there were reports coming all across the province of different weird things happening in the sky, and this is just one of them. So I guess UFO um, theorists believe you know something really special was happening in the sky that night. 
then you know the the skeptics believed it was maybe a meteor shower or something but um a photo of the lights not moving would go against the the idea that it could be a meteor shower yeah and was it ever ruled out that it could have been just a light far away not that i know of i think it was what they what they had done was with that photo is they looked at where he was, what direction he was facing when he took the photo to see what's back there. You know, is there an airport? Is there um, cell phone towers or whatever? I, not cell phone towers, but you know what I mean? Like big towers with lights on them and stuff like that. And there was there was nothing there to explain it. If it was, a, let's say, a, another aircraft, one theory is that the aircraft could have been traveling directly towards him, thus appearing like a stationary object. But there's based on where the airports are and which directions the flights would be going that was ruled out on those grounds do they know if there were i mean i don't i don't have a lot of answers for the photograph but as far as the all the witnesses to the actual uh, event of this orange yellowish orange light uh, you know floating across the the ocean and slowly disappearing it, it didn't sound like it was traveling very fast it, there was no noise, and they say it it sunk slowly. So that doesn't sound like an airplane on fire hitting the ocean. And they even say that they think it was 300 feet away to 1,000 feet away. And at that distance, I would assume that you could make out a lot more detail if it was an airplane or something on fire. But at nighttime lights in the sky you have zero depth of field you have no idea how close or far away most objects are correct yeah it would be hard to tell and when when they saw it like with laurie with his statement that we just heard he's driving in his car just you know looking at looking over the windshield and stuff seeing it traveling above the tree line describing it as traveling at roughly the same speed as his car i think he said he had to accelerate a little bit to keep up with it but this thing wasn't flying. But if it was me, what what it would appear to be would be something like uh, if I see these lights traveling above the tree line at a, at an odd angle, I would have thought it was the lights that are on the wings of like an uh, of an airplane. And maybe the airplane's like flying at a control or something. That's kind of how I picture it. Yeah, and if the airplane's really far away, it can appear as if you're traveling at the same speed as that airplane, even though the airplane's traveling at you know. 400 miles per hour mm-hmm. and you're only going 50 miles per hour but the distance will skew your perception of that and this was said to be like a, a, a absolutely clear night like kind of the ideal night for looking at stars and that sort of thing there was no clouds or n- nothing in the sky so yeah i could see that the the big theories really of of what it could have been um for one is a pretty much the main one that's thrown around is a meteor breaking up in the meteor actually crashing into the water because the meteor breaking up would kind of describe or would would explain you know four or five lights all together and as they're flashing on and off in sequence i guess i guess that could be explained by a meteor but it's i don't know that seems unusual to me and there was even descriptions of a flash so if it was a meteor maybe when it broke up it did give off a flash mm-hmm. my other thought with the meteor is when if it was a meteor it explodes, gives off a flash, breaks up into a few pieces to describe multiple lights. If it does hit Shag Harbor, 
what else is strange is the whole um, the, the foam that like when they went out there to try to find you know the bodies from the aircraft or whatever they end up finding that that thick foam I would, what my where my mind went is if it's a meteor flying through the air f- through space it's probably really hot if something like if a really hot rock hits this you know the salt water i wonder if that could explain the foam it's it's possible but i mean have you ever been to the shoreline or the ocean right oh yeah there's there's foam all the time <laughs> yeah this 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 was described as like as different than regular sea foam, and and again, a part of what makes the idea of the foam so compelling is this this is a lot of the people who saw it were fishermen from the area, so they'd be very familiar with the sea foam, what would be normal there. This was described as like a really thick patch that had like a sulfuric smell. They almost said you could have if like if you had a knife, you could almost like cut it with a knife and like spread it on toast, like it was not thick as butter, but it was you know getting there. Here's my theory on it, and and this is solely based off of uh, other events that have happened here in the States where uh, either an Air Force, a pilot, or somebody has set off flares in the sky, Mm -hmm. and these flares will float over a city, and typically there's between one and five flares, which is very similar to this event, and it's a dark sky so you have no you cannot see the the parachute or anything that's attached to the flare all you can see is the light of the flare and it appears to float and move very slowly but from different angles it would appear like four or five lights flying in formation or taking uh, different patterns mm-hmm. and also these flares are pretty much burning sulfur or magnesium and if it's slowly falling out of the sky and you can't tell if it's 20 miles away or 300 feet away if it's 20 miles away and all of a sudden it's dipping down below the the horizon of the ocean well there it is it looks like it's just sunk into the ocean or it actually was hitting the ocean where you thought it was and now you have this you know, flare that's depositing itself into the ocean and possibly bubbling up this metallic, you know, goo from its, uh, from its innards. But no one reports a flare happening or any kind of, you know, fiery lantern, like a Chinese lantern or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But if it floated from a nearby city, because these things can go for miles and miles, nobody would maybe make the connection that this came over from another location. One theory that kind of fits in with that, there's this thing back then called the Corona satellite. It was because this was at the end of the cold war. The Corona satellite was an American satellite that would go over um, Russia taking photographs. And again, they weren't digital back then. So what would happen is when the satellite then came over this part of Canada, where near where the American base was, it would, um, it would drop with a little parachute, the film canisters and the film canisters. Apparently they had it all planned so that an airplane would, would go collect the film canister out of the sky and, you know, land at the, the military base and look at the pictures or whatever but i guess often the the film canisters that were being dropped would hit the water sink and a submarine would go and catch them i i wonder some people think that the the corona satellite may have had something to do with this 
Um, and I wonder if, if when they dropped it, you know, there could have been flares attached to it for the, you know, for the airplane to intercept it or for the submarine to find it or something. It's just a thought. That would make sense because how would they find it if it didn't have any sort of identifier on it or a flare, especially and, at night? And especially in the late 60s when there wasn't, you know, GPS tags or, you know, whatever they would use nowadays. Uh, other thought is it could have been an experimental craft. Some people described uh, in the days after the Shag Harbor incident, they described um, debris being removed, put into trucks and taken away. Those reports seem anecdotal because nobody really has any evidence of it, like a photograph or anything of, of debris being removed. But some believe it could have been an experimental craft that crashed. The military didn't want to admit its existence. So they just, you know, that night they were like, or the next day they were like, we didn't find anything. But then in the days after that, collect it and, you know, get it out of there. That's that's one theory about it. That doesn't fly today when the military has an experimental crash, uh, experimental craft that has an accident because everybody has a cell phone now and they can take pictures of it. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, so few secrets nowadays that this happened there, there would be everybody in Shag Harbor would be on their front steps with their iPhones and iPads. So it's, it's hard to get around that. I mean, it's very possible. It could have been an experimental craft. It, it, could have been anything in the sky and and i absolutely believe that everyone in that town saw what they saw uh but then when the story goes on to military divers are covering things up or uh you know they start saying oh well it was an underwater ufo and it was beaming electricity to another craft and then it went around to this military base uh, that's where i i kind of think that they go off the deep end mm -hmm. but i absolutely think that everyone in that town saw this light in the sky uh -huh. and i do not disbelieve them at all it just my knee-jerk reaction wouldn't go to you know Aliens. Yeah, I would hit quite a few other things before I got to that. Uh, it is odd, uh, although the report is anecdotal as well. About a week later, uh, there's a report of somebody seeing. Actually, their TV was was uh, had interference. I think they went outside to mess with their satellite dish. I think was what had happened. But what they actually saw when they went outside was a light leaving Shag Harbor. The, the actual water and, you know, flying off into the sunset sort of thing. So some people have the opinion that a sh uh, some type of craft landed in the, in the harbor, hung out down there for almost a week and then flew away. But uh, you really have to stretch your imagination to imagine um, why that, uh, why that would be the case. Right. I would say what stuck, what stood out for me was the description of the odor Mm -hmm. the sulfur smell that they had. And all I can say is I think that's the key to this, whatever the truth is. I would like to take a flare, set it off, and just throw it in salty water and just let it sit there for 15, 20, half hour and see what's left behind. Because if you had sulfuric smelling foam, that would definitely um, sway my opinion in this case. And, and it might just go out. You know, it might hit that water and that flare goes out. It, there, it just depends what, what type of flare was it and everything. So it's, it's hard to tell because you'd have to get one that's actually a, 
a parachute flare or you know some kind of sky flare as opposed to just a road one <laughs> yeah well there's there's quite a few types i've actually i've had a, a ufologist on my show in the past and he there was a, sp- a specific ufo sighting not shag harbor or something unrelated to this where the, some of the theories involved um flares and he spoke at length about all the different types of flares and there's you know there's some that float and some that you know stay in the sky a lot longer and some that drop quicker and you know all this different stuff i don't remember the details of them all but there's um there's more than one type of flare there's more than two types of flares but that's something to consider and i guess the sulfuric smell it's probably that if there's something in the flare burning up that would make sense just make sure you get some video of it so that you can upload it to say instagram or something like that Mm, smart idea (laughs) so (laughs) Yeah, so aside from Shag Harbor, the UFO phenomenon in general, if you want to give some basic opinions uh, or ideas from both of you, like how do you feel about the phenomenon? Are you a believer in, in extraterrestrial intelligence? I am. I want to believe, you know, like Mulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I truly don't think we could be alone in this universe. And as far as Shag Harbor goes, I think it's actually one of the more... Uh, recorded and uh, I don't know what's what's the word more uh, compelling compelling you you know sightings mm-hmm. uh, I I think Roswell is actually easily can be you know thrown to the side as this was a weather balloon of some kind but some of these other sightings are much harder to throw out because you don't have as much information. You just have, we saw something in the sky and we have not been able to identify it. Mm-hmm. So technically, they saw a UFO. Exactly. So that's that's how I feel about it. But go ahead, Aaron. <laughs> oh, I've thought about this for a long time and my opinion changes over time. But currently, I'm of the opinion that there is life out there, but I don't really believe that it's visiting us. And I'm not sure uh, when I think over all these stories I've heard over time, there are many interesting stories. I love to read up on them, but I think that they can be explained for the most part. And as we see in true crime stories, witnesses to an event are often colored by their own internal beliefs and they see things in their own way. But when you take an event like this where you have quite a number of witnesses and much of their story lines up they're just describing what they've seen but they can't tell you what it is they can only give you an opinion so there's a separation there between what they saw and then what the truth of it was they don't have that other part to it so I think there will always be mysteries in life we can't explain everything away but until I have something more concrete I'm going to stick with there probably is life out there but I even question whether it's as advanced as we are and so if you look at the distances between just solar systems and galaxies it's it's too much of a distance I think so of course we have these people coming up with interesting uh, craft to travel great distances but uh, as it is I think it's pretty much science fiction at this point yeah my whole thought too would be like i definitely believe there's a life out there probably of any kind of form you can imagine but 
if they were to come here, I can't imagine there's like an alien in a machine like driving a ship. Like even like let's say when humans went to Mars, we send like the little rover thing and the rover's going around drilling holes and, you know, taking samples and doing all this sorts of things. If we were going to send some something even further than Mars, we'd have to be that much more advanced that it would be something even more advanced than our rover, but it wouldn't be some guy like in a big metal thing like flying over there. So, Agreed. The, so the idea that some other life form from, you know, beyond the stars shows up here in, for one, if they can navigate the entire way here without crashing, what are the chances that they actually crash when they get here? And, <laughs> and, my, and, and my problem is, like, let's say you're going out to look at a hornet's nest or a, an anthill. Mm-hmm. Do you go out to the ants that are out in your yard that are all alone by themselves and mess with them or do you go right to the anthill or the hornet's nest Mm -hmm. you don't find the individuals and with a lot of these ufo sightings they're out in the middle of the desert at like a trailer park (laughs) and not new york or la which from the sky or from space are huge blobs of light and that would what's that i would go check that out but then again we're trying to find logic and alien you know, interests. So <laughs> who knows? But I, I guess at the end of the day, whatever happened in Shag Harbor is definitely compelling. I don't think we're going to solve it. And I think after this amount of time, uh, people investigating it and looking into it, I don't think anyone's ever going to find the answer. For me, what excites me is the fact that there's something like this that happened, you know, an hour from my house. Um, and I'm happy to share the story with anybody. So I like people like like yourselves who wouldn't have known this story. I'm happy to speak to you about it and hear uh, hear you get excited talking about it as well. I think it's very cool. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, Jordan. I would highly suggest you look into these flares, and if you can find one that does have a sulfur content, and you can throw it into the harbor without breaking any environmental laws. <laughs> Please film it and we'll see what happens. Perhaps you'll be the one to solve the case. That will conclude tonight's episode of the Nighttime Podcast. For anyone looking to learn more about the Shag Harbor incident, please visit nighttimepodcast.com where I have added a collection of links to documentaries and books on this case. If you're interested in hearing more content from the Nighttime Podcast, you may be interested in joining the Nighttime Patron Group, where for $1 a month, you'll have access to a monthly bonus episode. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, on behalf of myself and the show's listeners, I'd like to thank the continued support of the show's current supporters and welcome the newest members of the group, Karen, Dominic, Kimberly, Sarah, Mitchell, Tim, Miss Grant, and the hosts of the Astonishing Legends podcast. In addition to providing me with great pride and motivation, without you, I mean it when I say the production of this show would not be possible. I would like to thank you for listening to the Nighttime Podcast. If you enjoy your time here, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. To stay up to date with the show, please follow me at facebook.com slash nighttimepodcast, as well as on Twitter, where my handle is at nighttimepod. If you have any story ideas or feedback on the show, I always enjoy hearing from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to talking to you again soon. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. 
Copyright, Jordan Bonaparte.